Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. As Americans headed to the polls on Election Day, diplomats from around the world headed to Marrakesh, Morocco, for the first big global climate summit since the Paris Agreement last year. This was to be an important inflection point in the global effort to combat climate change. Just a week earlier, the Paris Agreement officially entered into force after the requisite number of countries ratified it, and the meeting in Marrakesh would fill in some key details and add some technical guidance to enable the implementation of the agreement. And then Donald Trump was elected. During the campaign, he pledged to withdraw from the Paris Agreement and defund UN programs to combat climate change. So I was interested to learn the implications of the election on the ongoing negotiations in Morocco. So this episode is in two parts. First, I speak with Elliot Derringer of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, who I caught up with the day after Election Day, just as he was headed to Morocco. Elliot discusses the ways domestic politics here in the USA may affect climate negotiations, and also recounts the history of American leadership, or lack thereof, in international climate diplomacy. Next, I speak with Hugh Seeley, a diplomat from Grenada, who is a lead negotiator for the Alliance of Small Island States, known as AOSIS and UN Speak. I caught up with Hugh in Marrakesh about a week after the election, and as you'll see, he does not report that all that much has actually changed in these negotiations. He does, though, discuss the importance of American leadership and also offers some interesting insights into the role that countries like his can play in these big negotiations negotiations. As you'll see from these conversations, both these interviewees offer a degree of reassurance that you know, years of, of efforts of putting together this, this big Paris agreement uh, will not be thrown out the window, no matter what happens in Washington, D.C. And now here is Elliot Derringer. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The way the Paris Agreement is structured, once it enters into force, which it already has done, uh, a party has to wait three years before actually taking a step to withdraw from the agreement, and then it, that takes another year to play out. Mm-hmm. So uh, the U.S. Is, is a party and will remain a party to the agreement for the time being. Uh, if the U.S. were to withdraw, uh, that would not lead to an unraveling of the Paris Agreement. Uh, it, would, it will still stand 
as a global agreement, and nearly 100 other countries have already ratified it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we can expect that they'll want to follow through. It takes a while for any country to formally withdraw from the treaty. It is probably the case that the sort of voluntary commitments, the intended nationally determined contributions that make up like the nuts and bolts of the substance of the agreement, the U.S. president could, um, if, if he wanted to, um, simply not follow through with those voluntary commitments, which would, you know, functionally erode some of the, the, the strength and some of the meat of, of the, the Paris Agreement. You're right. I mean, there's sort of two levels of question here, whether the U.S. remains a party uh, and contributes to the development of the implementing rules of the Paris Agreement, which I think actually are quite critical because that is the means by which the U.S. would have some ability to hold other countries accountable for their promises. So uh, I think for that reason, it's important that the U.S. remain at the table. But the second level is uh, domestic policy. Uh, and given the structure of the Paris Agreement, we have to rely heavily on individual countries taking the actions at home that are needed to follow through. On, on those NDCs, those nationally determined contributions. Uh, and certainly there's additional uncertainty about our path forward domestically in light of the election outcome. Uh, but there, too, I, I think it, it's hard to prejudge. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the president-elect has uh, said things about uh, his intent with regard to the Environmental Protection Agency and the Clean Power Plan, uh, but frankly, undoing uh, regulation isn't as easy as it might look. It's not simply a stroke of the pen. Uh, it, it's a lengthy, open process that I think in this case would generate lots of political controversy. Uh, I think as, as far as EPA, uh, that's not something that the president can abolish on his own. That would take Congress too. And uh, I think given the very strong support, public support, uh, for things like clean air and clean water, uh, the uh, the abolition of EPA I think is very highly unlikely. Um, so we're we're going to have to see uh, w- what direction the Trump administration chooses to go on these issues. Uh, one important thing to keep in mind uh, is that the Supreme Court has ruled that EPA has authority to regulate greenhouse gases, mm-hmm. and at this point it's legally obligated to do so. Uh, so if the administration were to try to uh, un- unreal the, the clean power plan or if uh, for some reason the courts uh, were to toss it out, EPA would still be obligated to come up with a plan to reduce emissions from the power sector and then from, from other sectors of the economy as well. So uh, we, we, you can't simply uh, roll back the rules and, and uh, turn off the switch. Uh, there will continue to be strong pressure to move forward. And I, I think there's a strong economic logic behind that as well. Uh, we have, we, we, at this stage, we have genuinely begun a clean energy, energy transition. Uh, and it just makes sense to continue that momentum. Um, I, I'm would be curious to learn a little bit about the role of American leadership in international climate diplomacy more broadly and, and the Paris Agreement specifically. I mean, again, without prejudging what President-elect Trump will do, it's probably fair to say that his administration's 
uh, perhaps enthusiasm for engaging in these kinds of diplomacy would not likely be as great as, say, the previous administrations. Um, so how, I mean, how crucial is uh, American leadership in these kinds of forums? And like, what might you expect from a diminished American role in these forums? Uh, U.S. leadership is is crucial. It's vital. Uh, and it's thanks uh, in large part to U.S. leadership that we have seen such a strong string of climate successes at the international level. With just, just within the last few weeks, we've had the entry into force of the Paris Agreement, and we've had new agreements to cap aviation emissions and to phase down HFCs. Uh, all of these, in, each in its own right, uh, was a major success, but to have a trifecta like that uh, is really a high point in the global climate effort. And again, uh, the U.S. has been one of the major forces behind taking that forward. And I think that uh, continued U.S. leadership is important uh, because we now need to implement these agreements, uh, and that requires some some continued work on the nuts and bolts. Mm -hmm. And as I was suggesting earlier, this is in the U.S. interest uh, because the, the par part of the, the reason for the Paris Agreement is to provide a system where countries can hold one another accountable. Uh, so, and I think the U.S. benefits from that and, and needs to stay at the table to, to do that. Now, if, if the U.S. were to, were to withdraw, step back from the agreement, uh, I think that that would be seen as an abdication of the leadership that the U.S. has demonstrated. And so who and do you think I, would, would step in to fill the void in, in, in that case? Or would any country? Would Europe or, or China? Well, I, I, I don't know that, that we can uh, single out any one party as, as stepping in to, to fill that void. And, and the U.S. hasn't been able to do this on its own. Uh, it was in partnership with China, for instance, that uh, that we, we made uh, some significant headway that helped set the stage for the Paris Agreement. I think, though, that uh, what we see in the Paris Agreement is the community of nations uniting around this issue. Uh, countries get it. Uh, you know, uh, uh, people around the world, uh, on the street, in positions of power, uh, understand that the climate is changing. Uh, they understand that the risks are growing. Uh, they're also beginning to see the benefits of the actions we need to take uh, to address climate change, not just in terms of avoiding climate impacts, uh, but in terms of generating new opportunities for economic growth. So I, I, I think there, there, uh, you know, there are there is a strong global interest, and I think that uh, this is the, this this would not be the first time that. The U.S. has rejected a global right. climate agreement, uh, and the last time I think the upshot was that uh, that the rest of the world rallied around it. Mm -hmm. So that was actually going to be be my question, which is, you know, are there any lessons from from the Bush years, you know, which which was not a time of uh, American leadership in international climate diplomacy uh, that we might expect uh, to see in in the coming administration? Uh, well, again, uh, I, I'm not sure that we know yet what to expect. I think one lesson of the, the Bush rejection of Kyoto is that it's probably worth uh, taking a few moments to consider. Uh, consider the stakes, consider the options uh, before making a decision like that. Uh, there was a very strong international reaction to that. And I think that uh, the U.S., if it chooses to walk away again, faces some potentially serious diplomatic consequences. Uh, I think other countries may well be less 
willing to help support the U.S. in achieving its international objectives. So that that has to be factored into the into the decision. Um, so finally, go, going back to, to Marrakesh, can you uh, maybe dial in a little bit in the detail of what exactly is supposed to be fleshed out? Like, what is this meeting all about? You said earlier it's the first meeting uh, since the Paris Agreement of the Conference of Parties, um, and one in which um, you know it's, it's an implementing meeting, right, where, where some of the ideas in the Paris Agreement need to be um, filled in. What uh, can you give? Sort of walk me through a, a couple examples of what are some of the big questions, the big debates that are ongoing in Marrakesh right now. Sure. I mean, the Paris Agreement establishes the the, the basic framework, uh, but now the pieces need to be filled in. So some of the areas uh, where further decisions are required are, for instance the transparency framework that the agreement establishes uh, to hold countries accountable. Uh, countries will be required to uh, to regularly report to the international community on their emissions and on their progress in implementing their nationally determined contributions, and those reports will then be subject to different levels of international review. So at this stage, they need to work out the, the details of that transparency system. Uh, another element is the uh, what, what some people refer to as the ambition cycle. Under the agreement, countries are supposed to come back every five years uh, and first take stock of collective progress toward the long-term goals of the agreement. And then in the following year, uh, every country will submit an updated nationally determined contribution. So, uh, so spelling out the details of exactly how that process is going to work is another important subject of negotiation. Uh, and there are also some, uh, some market-related provisions of the agreement uh, that will facilitate uh, international emissions trading. Uh, a lot of details to be worked out there. So those are just some of the examples of the kinds of issues that still need to be addressed. Uh, well, Elliot, thank you so much for your time and safe travels. Thanks very much. Good to talk to you again. And now here is Hugh Seeley, a diplomat from Grenada, who is a lead negotiator for the Alliance of Small Island States. Uh, the, the negotiations have, have continued. Of course, there's been a lot of talk in the corridors. I, I would think that any 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 visible impact has been in the I would say a strengthened resolve on the on the part of the of of all the parties to to reconfirm their commitment to the Paris Agreement uh, and to move forward. Um, you know, as as a, a member of the the Small Island States Coalition, uh, you know your your organization, your group is known for pushing for very ambitious goals in in the the climate negotiations. I'm wondering. Um, if in, in the Paris Agreement or even before, what the, the role of, of American leadership at these conferences has been and sort of what we might expect going forward? I mean, based on your experience, like how, how important of a role does the United States play in these sorts of negotiations? I would say extremely important. Um, I don't think Paris would have succeeded unless the U.S. and China had come to an agreement before Paris. They were the two big, big elephants in the room, and 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 one of the reasons Paris succeeded, if if you call the Paris Agreement a success, and there and there are different view, views on that, but the fact that we were able to sign an agreement and and the whole world reached a consensus was 
was not uh, in a little bit due to the fact that that the two largest emitters, U.S. and China, had come to an agreement before even reached in Paris. So it, I think it's it's extremely important that the U.S. continues to play uh, a strong leadership role. How might diplomacy shift if the United States sort of recedes from that strong leadership role? Like what what else? What are some of those implications? Mark, I don't really, I really don't want to go there yet. I, I, I'm, I'm in a positive mood. Um, this is our first conference after Paris. It's, it's, it's an action conference. It's one that's supposed to be looking to implement the Paris Agreement. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward. Um, mm-hmm. Until or unless we get a, we get a, a definite signal from, from the incoming president, I'm prepared to be optimistic that the U.S. will continue to engage. So, so let's talk about uh, the negotiations happening in Marrakesh right now. So a- as you mentioned earlier, this is the first big meeting since the Paris Agreement a year ago. What is, is being discussed? What's being negotiated? Well, I think um, we are out of the nuts and bolts of the Paris Agreement. Um, there, are, there are a number of, of items that we have to work through uh, to make sure that the Paris Agreement can be, can be implemented. For example, um, what will be the, the, the features and the information that we would include in the next round of, of nationally determined uh, contributions? How will, the, how will the carbon market work under, under Article 6? We, we now have objectives for, for adaptation, so, so how do we operationalize uh, that? And then, and then the big issue is finance. The, the developed countries have promised uh, $100 billion U.S. dollars a year as, as a floor by 2020, but we're far away from that now in, in 2016. The, the, the Green Climate Fund has been capitalized at around $10 billion over the next four years, which is only $2.5 billion a year. So how do we get from $2.5 billion to $100 billion a year? And how do we define this climate finance? Is it, is it loans? Is it, is it all grant? Is it private finance? And is it capital investment? So that's, that's one of the, one of the the big issues for for mm-hmm. de- developing countries. So that that that's interesting to me. So the Paris Agreement, um, you know, left a lot of these really important details to later negotiations, and and so this is the COP, this is the the meeting where these negotiations are are beginning. That's right. The 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 devil is always in the details. The Paris Agreement had something in there for everyone, and I suppose that's why why we agreed it. It had. Uh, the long-term temperature goal of 1.5 degrees, which was absolutely essential uh, for small island states. It, it had um, issues on loss and damage, which is where adaptation ends and you and you can't adapt it anymore. So that's where loss and damage comes in. And I think that was a, a big issue for, for small islands as well, as well. It even had response measures in it, which is um, what the, the oil-producing com- countries were asking for. Um, the the, the the emphasis on economic diversification if they're going to lose their ability to to get revenue from from fossil fuels so so to work out the details now will take us perhaps a couple of years we we thought we had four years because we thought that the Paris agreement would 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 come into force in 2020 um we have been pleasantly surprised by by the momentum after Paris and the and the early entry into force on on November the 4th um, so can you uh, tell me some of the priorities that you are pursuing as a representative from the small island states group, a group, a, a group that's 
more vulnerable to the effects of climate change than perhaps any other uh, coalition of countries on the planet. So what, what are you doing? What are your priorities in, in America? Well, you're absolutely right. We, we, are the, uh, we argue that we are the most vulnerable to climate change and that it is an existential threat uh, to us. That is why we, we were adamant that two degrees of warming, uh, the original goal that the world had, had set out, was, was too much. And, and that we are already at one degree of warming, or almost one degree of warming, and we are already starting to feel the impacts of climate change on small islands. So we've always argued that the world needs to increase its ambition. It, it, it needs to, to reduce its, its, its greenhouse gas emissions rapidly. We need a revolution in the energy sector. We need a paradigm shift uh, as quickly as possible. I've, I've argued that it, it's akin to to a, a global Marshall Plan, and and that's what we've been arguing here. That we are we are we are worried that there's a sense of complacency that may set in after Paris. That that or or leaders may may feel well, it's a done deal now. We can relax. But I think Paris was the easy part. Achieving that 1.5 degrees of warming or, or keeping warming to less than 1.5 degrees is going to require a Herculean uh, effort on, on the part of all of us. And that's the message that we're sending here uh, at this conference. It's time to act. It's time to implement the Paris Agreement. And we can't wait until 2020. So the pre-2020 action is also terribly important. So, so what kind of resistance are you running into, if any? I don't think there's there's resistance uh, per se. Uh, I think our, our our developed country partners have, have always been reluctant to to lay out a, a clear roadmap for for how the means of of implementation would be would be put there. The means of of implementation is our jargon for the finance, the capacity building, the technology development and transfer uh, that will be required. And I think there's a bit of anxiety on on our part now that. Um, that those support mechanisms are, are provided. Mark, if you look at the nationally determined contributions that have been submitted by, by countries, um, first of all, they're inadequate. Um, if you add up the, the aggregate impact of these voluntary con- contributions from countries, it, it still takes us on a path to, to over three degrees of, of, of warming. But even within those nationally determined contributions, there were there were huge conditional components. There was there were there were components that countries said, we can do more, but it's conditional upon receiving this support, this finance, this 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 um, transfer of technology. So for us, as small islands, the our our our, prior, our priority is to ensure that the means of implementation are provided by the developed countries. Um, can you um, maybe take me inside uh, the negotiating room? I mean, earlier uh, before recording, you said that that under your remit as a representative uh, and a negotiator, a lead negotiator for the small island states is um, the issue of, of mitigation. Uh, can you explain what that issue is, what it means for small island states and how you are trying to um, pursue your agenda and your ends? Well, without... Without being too technical, the world is facing a an emissions gap right now. Um, uh, we're we're on a path, as I said, towards at least three degrees of warming. To 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 take us off of that trajectory will require 
a rapid reduction in, in emissions. Um, and the United Nations uh, Environment, uh, I used to call UNEP, I think it's now United Nations Environment, uh, they're, they're calling that gap at somewhere around 14 gigatons of, of, of carbon. So in, in, those, in, our, in our mitigation um, negotiations, the small islands are always, always stressing how do we curve the world's emissions? And, and it's, it's a fight uh, because a number of our development partners and the large emitters, I, I still tend to think, or they're, they're still thinking in a, in a short-term uh, manner. Um, and it's going to be difficult to, to extricate ourselves from, from a, a fossil fuel uh, economy. So the 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 in in the negotiations, it's um, I wouldn't say it's us against the rest of the world, but but there are there are definitely factions of of countries who uh, some of them wish to maintain the, the the status quo, and and in my humble opinion, are being myopic, and 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 some of us are with our backs to the wall, um, seeing that we are already in climate change, and and recognizing that this is a fight for our, our existence. So, so what kind of arguments, I mean, do you use, I mean, do, do you use like a moral argument saying, you know, our country, our, our people will be swallowed up by the sea if things continue oh, as they go? We, I mean, don't, we that, don't have any, is that effective? Yeah, we don't have any big sticks to, to, to wave, Mark. So um, small islands have always been called the conscience of the convention. Uh, we, we, it's recognized that we're the most vulnerable. It's also recognized that we didn't, we didn't cause climate change. Um, we can you can add up all the emissions of the forty four islands that are that are part of the alliance and, and we would probably come to less than half a percent of global emissions. So we're the conscience of the convention, another um analogy is that we're we're the canaries in the coal mine. Yes, we are the most vulnerable, yes we will be impacted, but what what happens to us will inevitably happen to, to, to other countries in, in the very near future. Um I wonder if if being sort of the most vulnerable countries on the planet has created or or inspired you, your country, or or your coalition to be perhaps creative in how you're currently uh, addressing climate change or come up with solutions that other countries, other groups of countries might not even think of or might not want to pursue. But because this is such an existential threat for you, you're, you're forced to think, I think, creatively uh, about the problem. Are there any kind of ideas or, or policies uh, to that end that, that the small island states are, are pursuing? Absolutely. Back in 2013, when the idea was first mooted of uh, an agreement that we would sign in 2015 and it would come into effect in 2020 and that we would have targets for either 2025 or 2030, the small island said, okay, we'll, we'll take that deal, but only if we, we, we add another work stream, and we call this work stream two. Work stream one was for all the politics around signing an internationally legally binding uh, treaty, like the, like a Paris Agreement. And work stream two, which was our baby, we came up with this in, within the EOSIS, was a technical collaborative approach to enhancing our mitigation ambition pre-2020. And we created an entire work stream out of that. We called it work stream two. And, and in, this, in this work stream, we changed the dynamics of the, of the negotiations. It was no longer finger pointing that you should do this and you haven't done this, etc. It was, can we find ways 
to, to, to collaborate? Can we bring technology to bear to solve some of these problems? And we addressed renewable energy, energy efficiency, agriculture, transport, and we, and we started to lay out thematic areas. That work stream has now been transformed into what's called the Global, global Climate Action Agenda. And the other thing that we did last year in Paris that, that small islands are very proud of is that we recognized that we wanted to link this, this technical expert process that we called it to the political level. And so we created something called high-level champions. And so we have two champions now that, that their, their job is to, is to, is to promote pre-2020 action. Uh, Lawrence Tubiana, uh, the ambassador from, from, from France, um, is one of the ambassadors, uh, one of the champions. And then the Moroccan uh, incumbent presidency has also appointed a, a champion. So we have, we have two high-level champions that were EOSIS creations, quite frankly, small island creations that are now, um, they have a, a global job uh, to do. So, yes, we recognize that the ordinary negotiating process um, could continue, but for small islands, we needed further action and we created an entirely different stream to the negotiation. So we're, we're trying to be as creative as possible and, and think outside of the box and also involve non-state actors, uh, the people on the ground who will actually be, be, be doing the, the actual mitigation projects. And that has been quite successful. Um, so looking forward, what outcomes from uh, the meeting in Marrakesh uh, can those of us on the outside look to, to as indicators of whether or not um, the direction, the trajectory uh, is, is moving in the right direction, that some of the policies and technical details that you are advocating for as, as one of the more high ambition uh, negotiators uh, are, are being implemented? Are there any sort of indicators we could look out for? That's a good question because I've I've been asking that of myself. When, uh -huh. If if I if I go home, how how can I tell this was a successful conference and and what would be my indicators? And 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 quite frankly, I have to to say that there are few indicators that are coming out of the negotiations at this stage. I would call it slow, but perhaps steady progress in 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 ironing out the the details. I suppose it's it's inevitable that. The, the COP that follows historic Paris would be would seem to be anticlimactic, um, and, and, and to go back to what happened on November the eighth, there is there is no doubt that 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 is 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 cast in a bit of a shadow um, over these these present um, negotiations. But but I would think that that now that we've entered the high level segment of the of the conference this week, uh, we have over seventy heads of state um, that we're making speeches. Uh, we have a, a, of course um, hundreds of of ministers here as well, and I'm hoping that they will they will pick up that political battle and 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 show a continued resolve uh, to implement the Paris Agreement. I think that will be the most important message to come out of Paris. I'm sorry, to come out of of, of Morocco uh, now is is that the world is is determined uh, to move forward in its in its fight against climate change. Uh, well, Hugh, thank you so much for your time. This was helpful. You're most welcome. 
thank you so much to my two interviewees. Thank you all for listening. Uh, and if you've not done so already, please check out the Patreon page that I created, which is a way for you to support the show. And also, if you're interested, take a deeper role in its production. Listeners who make a recurring monthly contribution through this platform can receive rewards for your support. So for being a Global Dispatches premium subscriber, you get a complimentary subscription to my Dawn's Digest Global News Clip service, sneak previews of upcoming episodes, and the opportunity to have your questions posed to my guests. And also, if enough of you join the Premium Club, I will launch a new podcast series shaped by you exclusively for your ears only. And also stickers. I will mail you a sticker in the mail. Who doesn't love stickers? To earn these rewards, to make your contribution, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches, or better yet, you can go to the homepage globaldispatchespodcast.com, click on the support the show banner, and that will take you to the Patreon page. Or if you're listening to this on iTunes or in the app, uh, you can just click on, on the link that's provided in the description of the show. Thank you so much. I really do need your support to make this a sustainable media enterprise for the coming months and years. I don't need a lot. I just need, I just need something. I appreciate it. Thanks. Bye.